Hey everyone, Guy Adami here. Welcome back to On The Tape, joined by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Listen, today we're going to be talking about C's, the letter C like Sesame Street, crude oil, crypto, central banks, Congress, cannabis. We're also going to talk to the great Kara Swisher when we go off the tape later in this program. But right now, I'm going to give you another C, Danny Moses. You ready? Eric Clapton. Don't say anything. Why do I mention Eric Clapton? Because he was a member of many bands, but one of my favorite bands released one album. By the way, the album cover is fantastic, 1969. You probably couldn't release it today. Although, given what I saw with the Grammys the other night, maybe you could release it today. <laughs> the name of the band is Blind Faith. Steve Winwood, Ginger Baker, Eric Clapton. And one of their great songs was Can't Find My Way Home. And you know what? The Fed can't find its way home because yesterday I had to listen to Jerome Powell tell everyone that they're data-dependent but they're not going to raise rates until 2023. There's a long way from here until 2023. And the bond market's calling BS on them, Dan Nathan. As we sit here today, 1.75% in the 10-year, the market's starting to care and the market should care because as cost of capital goes up, these names, these high-flying names with not a lot of revenues behind them, gets really scary really quick. What say you, Dan Nathan? Yeah, so in 2021, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has felt like it's in the presence of the Lord, if you will. Wow. You see what I did there? Nice job. Yeah, so that's back to your blind faith here. Listen, you make a great point. I do think that it's worth noting, Guy, that despite the fact that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was about 1% at the start of the year, the S&P 500 is only down right now 1% from its all-time high, okay? Like, so for some reason, equity investors just really don't seem to care. The S&P is up 5% on the year. The Dow is up nearly 8% on the year. The NASDAQ is the one that has really underperformed. That makes little sense to me. You know, Jim Cramer of CNBC, he tweeted this this morning that he just doesn't really see why Apple, Microsoft, Amazon are down on rising yield and investors better get used to 2%. I agree with that as far as the mega cap tech. Danny, you may kind of disagree in, in a lot of ways. I just think what's different this time, and I know I just triggered Guy Adami right there, the moats that Apple and Amazon and Microsoft have right now, I think just doesn't matter when it talk when you talk about where rates are. They have raised so much money over the last five years or so with rates where they are. They're just in a great spot from a balance sheet perspective. Yeah, I think those have turned into the defensive names, right? If you go back to names you would own back in the 80s and 90s in a sell-off, you, know, you go to the consumer packaged goods company, you go to you know the battery makers and soup. They are the soup companies now of go- going forward. I think you're right. But I want to comment. I want to go back to Guy. The opening line in the Blind Fate song is, come down off your throne. Yes. And <laughs> Jerome Powell, I mean, come down off your throne. I watched that yesterday. And it's amazing to me. I always compare going to the horse track to the market. Because the rates went down initially after he spoke, because the S&P rallied, however the setup was going into it, I don't know what people were expecting. I thought the forecast was actually more hawkish. Maybe he came across as more dovish. But the market then decided how it would report what happened. So if the S&P had gone down 40 handles like it is now off of that news, the narrative would have been Fed's losing control of bond market. No one believes him. But he did a very calm interpretation. What I can't believe is, and let's go to the dot plot for a second, which I think was dot expected. Plot. Let's go to the dot, dot plot. plot. Let's we go should to the have dot like plot. A, we should have like a little <laughs> screen <laughs> gem or screen, one of those. So, so again, not a big deal. 18 people voting. Last vote three months ago, 
There was one vote out of 18 that said they saw a rate hike in 22. There's now four. I think that if you had to guess, that that probably would have been the number. And in 23, we went, I think, from five to seven out of 18 that saw that in 23. So not a huge deal. But the GDP numbers and the, the fact that you would say inflation could run certainly 2.4%, I think, was the potential that was talked about there. And, just, and we're not going to worry about it because it's transient. I think the benefit of the doubt is not with Jerome Powell at this point. And I think he has a big problem on his hands. And I do believe, because they can't control the long end, the 30-year yields went up straight out of the box yesterday, regardless of what he said, right? Those yields were shooting higher. He can't control the long end of the curve. He could announce Operation Twist. I fully expect when he made the comment, we're going to use everything in our arsenal that's out there. But to your guys' point originally, credit spreads widen by definition off of these type. If you're issuing a five-year paper, seven-year paper in the corporate bond market, that's an issue. So spreads are widening. It's not an unhealthy. This is not a crazy number on the 10-year yields and even 30-year yields, but it's having an impact. And I think we're going to keep seeing that. So Guy Adami, the VIX, you've been talking about the VIX. It closed below 19 and a half for the first time in a year. And you've been mentioning the day that it breaks that, we might see some kind of activity going on. I look around here and I just mentioned the S&P is only down 1%. And that sounds like a big move, but it's really not, especially off of an all-time high. But crude oil is down 7% today. We're seeing some massive sell-offs and some high growth names here. We're seeing some pockets in the SPAC universe. We're going to get to that a little bit later of just some real decimation here. What does it mean that we just had that one-year low in the VIX and we're starting to see some kind of knock-on effects in some other risk assets? Well, it's interesting. You know, I happen to think one of the many unintended consequences, or in this case, maybe intended consequences of the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world is they've really tried to tamp down volatility, right? And they've been successful. Although, as we sit here today, you know, we're still talking about a VIX with a 20 handle. You know, if we go back in time when the S&P was making an all-time high in January of 2020, you were talking about a VIX with a 13 and a half, 14 handle. So here we are at new highs, with a VIX, not twice as much, but you know, a 20 handle is still significant. I think people have gotten complacent. I think the level of complacency out there is the market's going to go down for a day or two days, but the, the sell-offs are short-lived. And we've been rewarded, and I hate the term, but we've been rewarded for buying the dip. And that's been true. At a certain point, it's going to flip. And I know you said it's different this time. It's never different this time. And so much of this market rally has been predicated on low rates, and that's going away. Now, a lot of people will correctly say, hey, we had huge rallies with rates higher than we are now. And as I mentioned with my scuba analogy, that's true. But remember, we went from basically 2% to half a percent, and the speed with which we've gone from half a percent to 1.75 is absolutely going to give the market a very bad case of the bends. Sometimes you can get through that. Sometimes it's fatal. I hope it's not fatal, but it sure feels like the market's starting to catch wind of it. Yeah, there's something going on here also. Back to Dan's original comment about Amazon and Microsoft and these companies that are here to stay and they're acting defensive in nature, and I think that will continue. Jerome Powell actually made a comment several years ago when he just started, I think, as Fed chairman or shortly after, that he wasn't worried about inflation because it was evident that the Amazons and the e-commerce companies of the world were creating not just a level playing field for traditional retail, but were allowing access to products in a much cheaper manner because of economies of scale. Well, let's fast forward to what's happened. As the e-commerce has continuously gained market share, and a lot of that was pulled forward because of the pandemic and not shopping traditional retail, we all know that. Now there was such a run on so many products. I mean, I don't care if it's Johnson & Johnson making them or L'Oreal making them, whatever, Unilever, 
the supply chain has been broken. And so when that happens and demand outstrips supply, prices are going up. So you have two choices. The companies can eat it or they can pass it on to the consumer. What we're seeing right now in that world, prices are going up. And if that's the consumer's main platform to buy product, there is going to be inflation. How transient is it? I, I don't know. But you have two choices. Either hit the corporate margin or hit the consumer. What you know, Somebody's got to give here. And I got to say, I love calamity right now because it just there's so many things we're going to get into a lot more on, <laughs> wait, on the show. You just say calamity? That's another C. I didn't even have that in my open. You just yeah. do another C. So we got Clapton and calamity in the same show. I got to mention one thing, though. So we had Rebecca Jarvis on the podcast on Monday. Danny Moses was prominently featured in her documentary that dropped. On I don't know. Monday. Prominent, I would oh, say. All right. Yeah. But games okay. stopped. Yeah. And but but well, one of the things that was super funny is that the producers chose to use a clip of the character who played you in the big short movie. And it was the clip of you. Uh, you being the optimist, okay? So I, know. I, I just heard you say, I love calamity. I had to explain that in the, I had a walk-on part in the movie that was cut, as you know, that they ended up cutting it. It ended up on the film room floor. But I was so upset by the way of that line that when I went down to New Orleans to kind of meet the people on the set and spend time with the guy who was playing me who really didn't spend much time with me at all, Aww. I had a walk-on part. And I said, hey, I just want to let you know, I was optimistic about how we would perform during the calamity, but I wasn't optimistic about what was out there. So right, got it. just to clarify, I'm an optimistic <laughs> person, but I love opportunities. And sometimes you need calamity. And I appreciate you saying that, Danny, because I think I'm an optimistic person as well. But you know, one of the things I think you've tried to do in your investing strategies and now here on the tape, and one thing I try to do every night for the last 37 years on Fast Money is to try to point out, hey, look, the market's great, everything's, but here are the things that can go wrong. And if you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. But I'm telling you flat out, it's out there. And I think what we've been trying to do here for the last couple of weeks is point out that the bond market yields are going higher. It's manifesting itself in a number of different ways. Up until now, the market hasn't cared. But this is something you should be watching. And if you don't, you do it at your own peril, as they say. Well, I, I just think it's really interesting. I think a lot of the sentiment around the markets, why the S&P 500 literally is 1% from its all-time highs, despite this rise in interest rates, is just we went from doing the worst with this virus to maybe doing the best at this point, as far as you know, developed nations, that sort of thing, as far as vaccinations are rolling out. And I think there's just a ton of optimism that things are going to be back to normal in the back half of the year. And, you know, I just saw hit the tape that France is locking down Paris. I mean, that seems like a headline that we might have gotten used to maybe a year ago at this point. So I get the enthusiasm. I think there's a lot of issues as it relates to valuation. I think we haven't really hit that yet. You know, with higher interest rates, Danny, what happens? What, what do you start doing when you start thinking about equity valuations, right? And so it's not just cost of capital and all that sort of stuff. It's what you're willing to pay for an earning stream in the future. We're having a correction right now in that sort of mindset. And I guess where I would agree with you guys is that if all of it started to come together at the same point, I cannot understate how important I think the crude move today is and related stocks. Because when we've seen the NASDAQ down, when rates are up, what have we seen over the last couple of weeks? We've seen money flow into financial stocks, specifically banks, and then energy, and then some kind of cyclicals and some industrials. And that has been the trade. But if they all go the same way and they go lower at the same same time, where we are and where valuations are, we're going to be in for a sharp, sharp correction. Yeah, I don't know who Katie is, but you know, it's thought Katie barred the door. So I don't know if she's listening, but you might want to bar that door. Earlier this week on CNBC, Phil LeBeau interviewed the CEO of Lordstown 
Motors won Duda Duda. I don't know why I got Camp Town races in my mind, but yeah. it's so fascinating to me the double talk that takes place. Obviously, we saw the Hindenburg report earlier in the week about Lordstown Motors. I know you have some thoughts on it, but I'm sitting yeah. there watching this thing. I'm like, wait a second. How are you saying the double talk that goes on now? It's seemingly okay. It's like the world, it doesn't matter. You can basically bullshit your way through anything. And I'm sorry that I cursed, but it's true. What are your thoughts on the whole Lordstown situation? Yeah, well, when I watched this morning, so Steve Burns is uh, was dressed in a fireman's outfit, talking live from his Lordstown factory location to Phil LeBeau this morning. It brought me back to Fire Marshal Bill Burns, which was Jim Carrey in Living Color, one of the greatest characters in TV history, because that's how asinine the interview was, not on Phil's part, on the part of Steve. Phil was hammering Steve Burns and saying, I don't understand, you went public and raised money on these, quote, pre-orders and Steve goes yeah well that's what they were they're pre-orders they're not real and Steve's like well what do you mean they're not real he's like well you know we expect to get them but if you read the Hindenburg report and by the way you know another organization waking up in Washington is the SEC which has been pretty dormant for the last four years so what happens and we've talked about this before on a SPAC first quarter out of the box after being a public company be prepared what do they say the SEC is looking into the allegations made by Hindenburg which if you read the Hindenburg report you're kind of like that looks pretty foolproof to me. So I don't know what's going to end up happening. This was a $2.5 billion valued company. It's obviously dropping from here. As we all know, the SPAC price and the, and the pipe price was 10 bucks a share. But they have Wellington and Fidelity and Federated and BlackRock in there as investors. They came in on the pipe. GM is in there, remember, because they donated basically this plant towards them. They put in $25 million, I think, in capital and another $50 million, you know, effectively in goodwill from this plant to give to Lordstown, who's supposed to have an operating truck called the Endurance by September. And so now I think it's shifting to the other side. So again, we've talked about this before. Buyer beware, do your work. But I want to say one thing. The two two of the biggest problems in, in SPACs have been Nikola and now Lordstown. What do they have in common? They're electric vehicles, right, trucks. But why is Elon Musk has been able to get away with the stuff that he got away with? That set the table for saying, oh, future orders, deposits. That's how you're going to value a company. And just remember in SPACs, which Tesla's not, but these were, you can give future projections without any type of recourse. So again, I think maybe we're in a new administration. Maybe the SEC changes their ways. I, I don't know, but you know, SPAC buyer beware here. Well, you know, Danny, it's not just the Lordstown, right? We saw that Churchill Capital SPAC bought Lucid Motors. That's also an EV name. That 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 car is a hot car. I have no idea whether it exists or not, like the Lordstown car. <laughs> right. You know, they announced, I think, recently, a couple of weeks ago, that they had 7,500 pre-orders for that Lucid. That car was advertised during the Super Bowl, if you recall. It looks like a Tesla killer, at least the Model S. But that's, you know, that's $650 million worth of pre-orders. Who knows if we see that? And it brings us back to what you just said about what Elon Musk has been able to do. And he's been able to do it in the public markets, though, Danny, if you really think about it, right? When they announced that Cybertruck a couple years ago, they had a $100, $100 reservation cost, right? And then they announced how many that they had. And the stock traded off of that, right? And that's a truck that people don't know if they're ever going to make. So you throw the Lordstown, you have the Lucid. We saw how that Churchill SPAC traded after they made the acquisition. Position. It rallied like crazy into it and came off out of it. We know from the Tesla experience over the last 10 years that making cars from scratch is really hard. Okay. And so, you know, at the end of the day, and I, I think I'll tell you guys this, I probably have one of the hottest EV cars in the market. And you know who it was made by? Ford. 
I picked up the Mustang Look Mach-E on Saturday, and it is a hot car, and I mean that. So Detroit's coming for Tesla. All these SPAC companies are coming for Tesla. The Germans are coming for Tesla. The Japanese, and we know the Chinese are, right? So, you know, the competition is here. And then to your point, Danny, it's like the Wild West of EV companies coming to the public markets. They could have said whatever the hell they wanted to get bought by a SPAC, and now we're going to see a bit of a reckoning. Well, Dan, Nathan, you just gave us a buzz kill on the EV, but this buzz ETF, Dan, I don't know what, this is to me, it's insanity. In two weeks, the buzz ETF that I think we discussed has half a billion dollars in assets. I mean, what's going on? And you see something like this, Danny Moses, I know how you're wired because we're wired very similarly. You got to be scratching your head saying, how in the world is this possible? Well, it's Dave Portnoy's a popular guy. He's been saying buy the dip. He's been right nonstop. You know, got to give him credit until he's not. But again, there's no alpha in that thing. It's 75 companies. You got to be north of 5 billion. It's whatever's mentioned on social media. Again, I'll never begin to try to understand how these algorithms are going to be built. It's transparent. You can see what's in it. Like I said before, pick a stock that's in there. I mean, plugs in there, right? How did plug do this week? PLUG. Why do you need plug in your portfolio? Go buy individual stocks. But listen, it's a popularity contest. He's getting 75 basis points or sharing that, obviously, of that $500 million as it comes in and gets created. Great for him. It's marketing, and he's taking advantage of it. So that's one of many ETFs that I have a problem with, the same in the fixed income market ETF, the same in the levered market ETF, and so forth. So is what it is. I mean, I, you know, Dan, there's some ETFs out there that deal in precious metals and Bitcoin, and I think you made a great comment a couple of weeks ago, and it was very evident yesterday when the Fed reported Bitcoin and crypto is eating gold's lunch. And we've gone from what, a trillion dollars and 12 trillion, probably to 1.4 trillion and 11 trillion. I mean, the gap is closing between the outstanding gold market. What do we do here with gold? So it's really interesting. I was never much of a gold bug. I understand why people who lived through the 70s and, and the inflation scares there, why, why they might want to think about a hedge. And at the end of the day, if you think about what most allocations are towards gold from people's investable assets, it's usually what low single digits or so. Guy can probably speak to that. But one of the major themes, I guess, one of the major pillars of the bull case for Bitcoin, quite simply, is that that Bitcoin is digital gold. And it's just a greater fool's just like gold is, if you think about it, right? So why not have something that's a bit more transportable, a bit more liquid, that sort of thing? I know that there's plenty of energy concerns. And I know that's a, a raging debate out there. I don't really have an opinion on that one way or another. But if I were inclined to buy gold to hedge against inflation, then I would be more inclined to just buy Bitcoin. And I think that's what's happening as a generation of new entrants to financial markets, their first thing, the millennials, they probably own Bitcoin or some crypto before they own a stock in the stock market. So things are getting to, so guy, I'm going to say this, it's different this time, buddy. Uh, BS, it's not different this time. And gold is not a greater fool's, I can give you greater fool's theory stuff all day long, tulips being one of them. And believe me, I know because I was around then. But gold is not one of them. And oh, by the way, as all these central banks hoard the physical metal, I'm telling you, as sure as I sit here before the two of you, there's going to come a day when everybody, remember when everybody couldn't take delivery of crude oil because it didn't make sense financially and the front month contract went to minus $39 a barrel? Well, there's going to come a day when everybody wants to take delivery of gold and you're going to watch what happens. Mark 
my words. Just real quickly to, to Danny's point, though, that the gap is narrowing, right, between gold at 12 trillion globally and Bitcoin now at like 1 trillion or something like that. So to be right on Bitcoin, you don't even need to be, you know, like if that is one of the pillars of your bullish thesis on Bitcoin, it just doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of more um, activity. And I don't know if you guys saw this, Danny, did you see this? I think it was Morgan Stanley is now allowing their advisors to allocate towards Bitcoin. Bitcoin, which that is a massive sea change. Yeah, we've been saying this, that every time we see a sell-off in Bitcoin, it goes from weak hands to stronger hands. It was evident to me yesterday during the Fed press conference, watching Bitcoin kind of recover, move higher in gold. Yeah, it did okay, maybe up 1%, 2%. But that was the first time it really became really evident to me. And I want to switch to a, another commodity out there, which is cannabis. If you want to call it a commodity, which it certainly checks all the boxes. I call for it. it something else, but whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's it's another C. I'm going to give you a stat. I'm going to tell you what's going on. I think this is correct. The state of Illinois, all these states report monthly cannabis revenues, and then you know what the, what the tax receipts are. In the month of February, in the state of Illinois, I believe that cannabis tax receipts exceeded alcohol. Now we all have been saying for a long time that in the cities and and, and states where cannabis is legal for adult use even, even more than medical, that alcohol sales have been dropping, which is the reason that alcohol sales have been on the defensive. This week, the alcohol industry drew up regulation framework and sent to Washington thinking that, and I I don't think they're wrong, thinking that cannabis should be regulated like alcohol. You have distribution companies in each state. It's a state-by-state program, so they're not wrong. But what also happened is the SAFE Act, which stands for the Secure and Fair Enforcement Act, effectively was reintroduced into Washington, into the House, it passed overwhelmingly in 2019. It basically gives cover to banks to lend to the cannabis sector. The cost of capital has dropped for cannabis, but it's still way too high. It was in the 20s. It's in the teens now. This would give cover, and it would help everybody. It would control tax receipts. There'll be something in that bill that allows these companies to trade on the U.S. exchanges, right? So I think we have a long way to go. So the Senate blocked it before because it was controlled by the Republicans. Specifically, it was controlled by senators from various states like Idaho, who did not want to see this bill even reach the floor. So the Senate now seems like they're in position to approve this. There's a lot of criminal justice reforms, which I'm all for, which are going to be attached to it. But it's supposed to be introduced today as we speak. I think you're going to see a lot about this. We had to get the stimulus bill out of the way. The infrastructure bill is kind of out there. But look for this cannabis bill to keep coming. And so I think cannabis has real legs here, and it's going to really show it, it, you know, its strength here over the next couple months for sure. No question about it. I, I agree with you. By the way, I think Howard Schultz, the former Starbucks CEO, has thrown his hat in the ring without question. You look at companies like... Like Constellation brands that were basically almost two and a half, three years ahead of the curve in terms of this. And they're going to start to be rewarded, I believe, in terms of their stock price, not to play stock market here. Hey, Danny, so so this is, we met, Guy and I met you face-to-face on the set of Fast Money a couple of years ago. You came on in the segment, you were talking about cannabis then, you were calling it the big long here. A lot of what you said, you can, guys can Google that interview, has really come to pass. And you, you thought that we were really working towards this federally legal you know, situation. And then you also, I think, and I heard you talk about it in this capacity before, but it really is, like you just said, a big part of criminal justice. Reform. There's a lot of people sitting in jail having to do with convictions relative to cannabis, that sort of thing. So how do you play this as an investor? I get these questions all the time, and I don't really love to opine on sectors that I don't know a whole heck of a lot. I know you spent a lot of time in this sector. How would you play this if you're long-term bullish on cannabis? Well, maybe you short the private prisons. That's a whole other discussion. But yeah. um, the large U.S. MSOs, so the Green Thumbs, 
Crescos, the True Leaves that are out there. They are positioned correctly. Now, when I was on the show a couple years ago, you know, they made me come up with like four or five names, which I had mentioned at, at, at the time. There was only so many ways to play this. Mm-hmm. And I realized after that and during that, that a lot of these companies were set up with very bad corporate governance, very little access to capital. They used their stocks as their only currency they could to come to the markets. And a lot of that was on the junior exchange in Canada. So some of these companies didn't make it. But the ones that have survived and the ones that are going to make it are now here to stay. And these are going to be the CPG companies of the future. So what have the good ones been doing? They've been vertically integrating themselves in in the best states, the Floridas, the Pennsylvanias, the Illinois, the Colorados, the Massachusetts. And they own brands. They own the distribution. They own the grow. And they own the dispensaries, which is the distribution. But I'm saying there is a whole mechanism there. So vertically integration, these companies are now smart. And what's about to happen they're about to finally get access to 5%, 7% type paper. These companies are still doing sale leaseback transactions to IIPR, which has been a huge beneficiary of it, to, to raise money. So that's going to change. And, and now you're seeing real CBG companies come in and invest, right? You're, you're seeing tax revenues for real that are needed in so many jurisdictions. And so I'm really excited. And to your point before, you got Tiger Global in, in the trade. You got Howard Schultz, who's come in, who just invested a little bit more in Dutchie which is kind of an online marketplace for cannabis dispensaries. You got Silver Spike, which bought Weed Maps, which that SPAC, which is one that I actually like, is going to be closing here shortly. And that's the Google of the space. I mean, it's very cheap in my opinion. So there's so many ways to be able to play this. And you're going to see a confluence, like I said before. And again, the sector most scared is the drug sector. The pharmaceutical sector is absolutely terrified. Have you been into like a just a CBD store recently? Just... <laughs> Forget about dispensaries, but like I said, everybody should go in a dispensary if you can. If it's legal in your state, just go in and look through it. Talk to these bud tenders. Go in and say, my back hurts. What do I get? Like These drug companies are freaking out, and they should be, because because the drug works, um, and it doesn't right, have Hold on. Hold on. I got to yeah. stop you for a second, because I, I, you said something that this is the first time I've ever heard this word. So obviously, I'm 57 years old, so when I used to go out, you would go to your local bartender. Did you just say bud tender and just went right past? You didn't even flinch. Yeah, you know, you go in for bar, you go to a bar, you say, "Hey, make me your favorite cocktail." You go into the, you go into a dispensary, you say, "Give me your fav- give me your favorite brand of of cannabis, your favorite strain." And do and you have to be a certain age to be a bud tender? Do you have to go to like mixology school for bud tenders? There are bud tender schools now. There are this is training is going on. Funny that you say that. I'm invested in a private company called Vangst. Which does like which does headhunters and places people, places growers, places bud tenders. You know, so I'm telling you, you go in, guy, and all those injuries from your sports days that you have, just go in and ask them. So you're into the uh, picks and the shovels here in the cannabis. Is that that, that's also one way you think about it? Yeah, and I you don't even have to touch the plant. Like I said, you could be one of these, you know, Google type companies to do it. So yes, I'm excited about it. I have been excited about it. It's going to have its day in the sun. Finally, everything is lined up for these guys, and so it should be a, a. you know, this is going to go on for several years. I told you, this is like the auto auto industry in the 50s. This is like the internet in the 90s. What happened after those, right, two things that occurred? This is this is here to stay. So, and everybody wants it. Yeah, well, you know what else the market's excited about? Some of the valuations of these fintech companies. eToro, for example, it came out an implied valuation as a SPAC this week, $10.4 billion. Talk about getting high. Stripe, which had a $35 billion valuation this time, Last year, I think, has tripled that now. I mean, it's pretty remarkable when you see these valuations. And I get it. FinTech is all the rage. The other, what do you call it, Dan? DeFi or something? That's all the rage as well. But talk to me, Dan Nathan, because 
I clearly don't get it, but it's happening right in front of my eyes. Well, I think a lot of these fintech names, it, it, you know, we don't have to talk about the online training because we kind of did that a lot with the GameStop over the last couple of months. But when you think about, let's call it like a square, for instance, you know, I mean, this is a company that saw a massive pull forward of some behavior during the pandemic with their cash app, their acceptance of Bitcoin, the ability to buy and sell it on their small business that they serviced a great deal of got hit very hard during the pandemic. But if you look at their other business lines, it just destroyed. So this is a company that, you know, now is growing earnings at about 50% on an adjusted basis. And when you look at what their sales did, it went from $9.5 billion in sales in 2020, expected to do 12.5 this year. That's 33%. So this has become like a behemoth in a way, and it's got the market cap to show for it. A lot of ways, I would tell you that trading six and a half times 2022 sales doesn't sound that unreasonable. But I will tell you this, when you're talking about like a Stripe, which is a monster of a company, you know, because when some of these companies are in the private markets, we don't speak about them on CNBC, or you may not read a lot about them in the journal or Barron's or something like that. But but Stripe is a company that has stayed under the radar, and they've just been destroying it in this whole digital transaction space or whatever. You know, to me, to see anything skip from 36 billion to near 100 billion in a year, that's telling me something that there's some euphoric behavior here. Well, the Sergeant Holka, by the way, of Stripe, <laughs> yeah. or if, if I may, is this is Coinbase. I mean, Coinbase is going to come out with a potential valuation. I look at this and say, how is this possible? A hundred billion dollar valuation, given if you do the math, the amount of shares are going to float and what's been going on in the secondary market. Does that make sense? I think, you know, again, how many publicly traded ways can you play Bitcoin in a pretty pretty direct manner? Is that a lot relative to what crypto is doing? I mean, I think what is a lot is I saw something regarding how much the CEO is going to be making or, or something. <laughs> I You know, more, more power to him, I guess. But in the scheme of everything you just mentioned, I guess it's not that crazy. We've seen companies come out and grow into their market caps. You know, when, you know, when Square first came out, it was very expensive. When, when PayPal first came out, I thought it was expensive. They've, they've exceeded those type things. This is definitely an area in fintech. And when you say fintech now, I think you need to say crypto because you got to have a crypto strategy if you're a fintech company, obviously. So we'll wait and see. But relative to what I see out there, the, the Tesla's at $700 billion and things like that, no, it's not that crazy. On an absolute basis, is it a little high? Sure. Maybe it's worth that. I, I don't know. I think Danny makes the main point. It's it's a scarcity thing, right? Like so, you know, we have friends like our friend BK runs a VC fund. He's investing in companies that have been related to crypto. DeFi is a big area. Decentralized finance. I know he loves these decentralized exchanges, and I think it's really important to understand here. Coinbase is the single largest ramp to the decentralized world, but it is very the decentralized finance world. It is a very centralized platform, right? And and I think that they had some disclosure about their finances. I mean, the company is profitable and, you know, they, do they have competition? Sure. But I think first to market, you know, we were probably poo-pooing, like you say, Danny, PayPal as a disruptor five, six years ago, whenever it got spun out of eBay. But, you know, the Coinbase, the ability to go public, the ability to raise this sort of capital, the fact that they're profitable, the first mover in the space probably gives them the ability to make some acquisitions and do some pretty interesting things. I'm not telling you when it comes out at $100 billion, it's a buy, but it's certainly could be a harbinger for some of the enthusiasm that we're seeing around global financial markets in general. When we come back, we're going to go off the tape with the great Kara Swisher. Be right back. 
Now we're going off the tape with Kara Swisher. Kara needs no introduction. She is a legendary tech and business reporter. She got her start at the Washington Post, then the Wall Street Journal, and later started Recode. Kara is now a New York Times opinion contributing writer, hosts their Sway podcast, and also co-hosts the Pivot podcast. And maybe most importantly, Kara Swisher is a graduate of Georgetown University. Kara, I know you probably are not interested in this, but in 1971, the Rolling Stones released Sticky Fingers. I think it's their greatest album. I mean, some great tunes. Can't you hear me knocking, bitch? I mean, unbelievable album. But the second song, I remember on the, the first album side, cover, Zipper. I wrote there was there, there was a zipper on the album cover, correct? Look at you. I mean, that's fantastic. I'm I'm, no, you're not. <laughs> yes, I but, really am. But go but ahead. The second song on the first side was Sway. And when I heard you were doing Sway, I'm like, Kara, Kara Swisher is so down with the Rolling Stones. I know that's not the <laughs> impetus for this, but I mentioned it because, listen, you started as a reporter, breaking news. You always had opinions, but now you're an opinion columnist. How have you found the transition from journalist to opinion writer? Well, I am a journalist still. See, I think the, the strength of a really good opinion writer is to be a journalist. And I don't do opinion just based on whatever the heck, punditry, where you just pick a topic and go. I can do that about movies or things like that because I watch it. I have an opinion, but I, everything I do is based on reporting. So it's not, I don't think it's a big deal. And I think I had already made the transition when I left the wall street journal, just basic beat reporting and did all things D because in all things D we had an opinion. We did the reporting, whether it was Peter Kafka or me or whoever was writing. And then we'd say, here's what it means. And we always had an opinion, but it was based on reporting. And so that's a very different thing. So Peter would write something like Comcast is doing this, but let me break it down for you. This is what I think is happening. Or I would say, this person was picked as CEO of Yahoo, but let me tell you, it's going to be a disaster. And it wasn't like we could say it was a disaster. It's like based on our analysis. And so I was already having opinions about things for a very long time, especially with those videos I do where I would hector people. I would say, I think you suck. What do you think? Or whatever. But how, how did that change, Carrie? You know, you were one of the most prolific podcasters. I, I think you were early to the medium. It seems like when you guys started Recode. Um, it wasn't just going to be the printed word, but you guys made a point of starting with this medium. How has that changed, you know, reporting and the opinion stuff that you do? It's brought it to life for all intents and purposes and giving you the opportunity to take some of those interviews and some of that sourcing and really have the people who are listening get a very intimate feel for it. Yeah, I really, I started podcasting six years ago, six or seven years ago, you know, 100, I think it went up to seven, 800 interviews. And I also had done the live events for 10 years before that, since 2000. 2002, I think it was 2003. And so that's a very long time. Live interviews were like podcasting to me, right? And then I decided because I could only do so many of the live interviews a year, I could do hundreds if I did a podcast because it came out twice or three times a week, you could do that. And so one of the things I thought was important is one of the complaints about media is that everything's through the lens of media and they're, you know, especially tech people who are always in pain because they're such delicate flowers about every single criticism you might make of them. I let them talk then. Okay, let's hear you. You get your say, but I get my say too. And you have to sort of go toe to toe. And I think I'm doing it not in a, I don't mean to insult cable because you're all on cable, but 
you know, there's a reductiveness to it. You have two seconds to answer questions. This is an hour. So you either make it or you don't. I'm giving people plenty of chances to do well or not do well and make their case or don't make their case and have an argument with someone. And so it sounds like an interview I might have. And the whole thing is there so people can make their own judgment of who's right and who's wrong. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've been, you know, for years gone to your code conferences and all things D, a lot of great stuff happened there. But oftentimes it was behind the paywall or you weren't there live and it was something that was reported on afterwards. And I found when you started podcasting for some reason, some of these tech CEOs, and generally they're male, they just had a glutton for coming on your podcast (laughs) and knowing. So tell us about that. And they come back and they know they're going to get raked through the coals here. No, no, they're not. They just have to have good answers to the questions I have. That is not right through the coals. It's really interesting. I was just talking about this movie. I just saw Promising Young Woman and every all men are freaking out over it and all women are like, yay, this sounds good. And everyone's like, oh, it's her vengeance. I'm like, it's not a vengeance. She's doing the right thing. She's handling the situation of what happened to her. And so one of the things I think about is that there's this whole meme about me being scary. I'm like, honestly, would you say it about a man? You wouldn't. I, I don't mean to keep that old trope. But the fact of the matter is I ask tough questions and you either answer them or you can't. And there's no gender to that. It's just you can either answer the questions I ask or you can have a bad answer. You can do talking points if you want to do that. But people can hear you doing it. And most smart people can discern. And the ones that do really well with me answer the question, even if we just end up disagreeing. And we often do. Yeah, no, we enjoy it, obviously. But let me ask you this. So you're going to ask tough questions and you're not going to let them off the hook. And that is something it's a signature of yours. And I think your viewers and your readers really appreciate that. But why does like a Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, he doesn't do well with you. He sweats when he is in your presence, right? So does he think that he's going to come back and do a better job? And obviously you're not there. I don't think he's coming back. going to go for easier interviews. I've noticed. You think so? Yeah. Oh, that, I know. That's, that's kind I of already it. know. I've tried to get him to come on and he's decided to opt for greener pastures, I guess. And they can only get into trouble talking to me, right? Possibly. And if they have a softer interview, they can do better. And then, so I get why they do it from their perspective. I don't think that's a good idea. Like I really admire someone like Dara Khosrowshahi, who I give a very hard time to. And he comes on, he answers. And I appreciate that. And I think that's his job as a CEO is to answer tough questions. A lot of people don't think that. And I think when you get to a certain wealth and a certain bubble that you tend to try to stay in that bubble. To me, it's weird, but whatever. They can make their own decisions and I'll write whatever I want. They can either come on or not. I would love to interview Mark Zuckerberg again. I'm sorry he has such trouble with my interviews. But the trouble is not my questions. I'm not unfair. If you listen to them, I'm not unfair to him. I think I give him plenty of chance. He just doesn't answer well. And that's his problem. I think when you have that much responsibility, you should answer to your toughest questioners. I think it's a duty, but he might not. So he doesn't have to. He can do whatever he wants. It's a free country. I think he would show a lot of integrity if he actually did interviews that challenged him more. But that's just me. Yeah. So, you know, on that front, Elon Musk, you've also had- you, he always comes on. He doesn't, it, there is no holds barred, um, you know, and, and, and he pushes back at you hard often too. Leave. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. It's like, I appreciate that. And we do not agree on everything. I think a lot of stuff he's doing is amazing. I love the stuff he's doing on Tesla. I love that. Not everything, but like a lot of it. And overall, I think what he's doing is really interesting and fascinating and challenging and hard and full of kind of things. I do, you know, we talk about him indulging himself with his silly tweets and stuff like that. He answers questions and you may not like them, but he answers them. And I appreciate that. And we had a disagreement over his COVID thoughts. I thought they were irresponsible. I told him so to his face. He was man enough to take it and he pushed back on me. It's fine. That's fine. That's fine. 
I'm good with that. I think that's healthy for him to do that. And I, I admire him for that. Do you think there'll be a reckoning for some of these very public figures? You know, that, that tweet was probably the one that we're talking about. It's probably a year ago. And it was really I before. I know. He's the yeah, and, man in the world. I don't know. What's the reckoning? He shouldn't have done well, it. Well, I, I just mean from an intellectual standpoint. You know, it just seems that like, you know, here we are, I think, at least in our country, it feels like we are literally just a few steps away from the other side of this pandemic. But there was a lot of like intellectual dishonesty from some very smart people. Is that fair to say? I would agree. I think it was careless on his part. But, you know, he he has to live with his actions and stuff like that. I I think sometimes when he does stuff like, he, you know, doge or whatever he does, I think he's just letting off steam, I think, in some ways. And he's not thinking about it as much as he should. One thing I think he, he sort of gets but doesn't get is the impact he has on people. Like, he can move markets. If he does buy the stock, people, like, rush to it. And so the power he has is rather vast. And he kind of pretends he doesn't have it in a weird way, like he's one of the guys or just, hey, this is just my opinion. He's a prankster in a lot of ways. And so I think when you have that much power and you're a prankster, you have, I think, a little harder than he does. But, you know, I don't know. I feel like he should do whatever he wants. So there's a lot of comparisons to Musk to Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos just announced that he's going to step down. Um, I can't recall any time in, in the recent past where you've interviewed uh, Bezos. Is he kind of like your... your years ago. You did a couple of years ago? Okay, um, two or three years ago. Yeah. Okay. On sweat. Ed Code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And do you, do you find, I mean, obviously he's kept a very low media profile. Yeah, he didn't used to. I, one of the things that's really interesting, and he used to be very dial a Jeff. Jeff would call you at all times when he was starting his company because he needed the press, right? Like, I get it. Like, I'm not offended that they don't, you know, want to talk. But on some level, again, why should he? Why should he? It doesn't, if it doesn't interest him, it doesn't help him, it possibly could hurt him. Okay, whatever. I think he's so smart. I love talking to him anytime I talk to him. And, you know, I think one of the reasons he quit is like, I don't want to go to Congress anymore and talk to these people. I don't think he thinks, I mean, you know, like let Andy do it. I don't need to. I have other things I'm interested in. And so like a lot of people, Elon and Jeff are mixed bags. Some of the things they're doing are super admirable, like the Washington Post in Jeff's case and has done a very good job there. And other cases, the stuff around employees, you're like, oh, really? You know, but I think that's, I would love to talk to him about that. At the same time, I'd understand if I were him, like, what do I want to talk to that person for? Like, I, I don't I don't get offended by it. And I don't get all righteous like a lot of reporters do about it. They can do what they want. I suspect his exit interview will be with Kara Swisher on. Sunday. No, I that's hope just, no. I that's, love talking that, to that, that's, that, that's just a guess. Let's finish up on this medium of podcasting. Like, because to me, I think that some of the innovation that's going on right now is pretty fascinating. I was on a Twitter space that you hosted uh, maybe a week or so ago. Obviously, Clubhouse is all the rage. Have you been on Clubhouse? house yet at all once or twice it's fine what do you think of it i mean you've seen these these new progs come and go over the last 10 years a lot you know we've seen in twitter's case you know vine and periscope and facebook live and these things just haven't stuck a why do you think that has been the case and do you think that twitter spaces and clubhouse have a future I think they're interesting. I think, you know, a lot of, the, I've always thought Vine was interesting. I thought Periscope was interesting. I just wasn't the time. Sometimes it's the timing of something. It wasn't quite ready and stuff like that. And so Clubhouse certainly benefited from pandemic and people being home and bored and wanting other entertainment. They've used up all their Netflix, whatever, you know, on their playlists. And even though it's endless, Netflix is endless. And so, and so are, then now there's HBO Max and everything else. But you want something different and people want connection. 
So I think, you know, and voice connection is a little less of a lift than a video connection and everyone's still looking at Zooms and stuff like that. And so it makes like from a pandemic point of view, it's a perfect storm for them in terms of getting people interested. It also, it's sort of like the internet, like someone was like, what's on Clubhouse? I'm like, what do you care? If you find one thing you like, what's the difference? You could ignore the tech bro stupidity that they, all those stupid arguments of whether they like New York Times reporters on, which I mean, is an entire waste of time for anybody if that's what they want to focus in on. But there's some really, you know, whatever grows out of it is interesting. There's also the possibility of a lot of multi-level marketing crap and bullshit health stuff. I could make a list of what I could do or white supremacy, anything. Trust and safety is going to be even that much more important for that medium. Try monitoring YouTube. It's hard. It's hard, you know, with audio. But anyway, it's it's, it's a less of a lift than video. And so I make, it makes sense to me. I happen to like Twitter spaces more if they put real resources in because my interest graph is on Twitter. And so I don't want to create a new one. I don't want to have another 700,000 whatever followers on Clubhouse or whatever it is. I think it's cool. I suspect someone will buy it. That would be my guess. Clubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Snapchat should buy it tomorrow. It should be a knockout bid and it should be gone. And it's funny what you said about the social graph. Unless they started themselves. And then, you know, I think they've got a really unique opportunity. And I, some of the stuff that went on there is kind of ridiculous. I think they let their VCs take over a little bit more and mouth off because they're, they just have this anger towards the media, whatever, like move along, go buy yourself another yacht and, stop bothering the media. But it's a really interesting medium. I don't discount it. I happen to like Twitter spaces more where I had I interviewed Kayvon Beckport. Yep. I like the people on Twitter. I just like the medium. It's just a preference. But it's cool. I, I like it. I think it's cool. I think what you said about the social graph is really important. I suspect that every time I've ever been on Clubhouse, I'm sitting there with my iPhone in my hand and I'm scrolling Twitter. You know, I'm looking at well, that doesn't lend itself well. And I think the idea that it's a multifaceted sort of experience because you can look at well. the tweets. Yeah. So Twitter I, has screwed up a lot of things, right? Twitter has been on the cusp of so many trends and missed the turn. It's really amazing. It's sort of like font of innovation that, that is correct, but never goes anywhere and other people take advantage of. I think that this audio is Twitter's to lose. I think that, that Twitter Spaces has the ability to be the first micro podcasting site where if they allow influencers to record, transcribe, clip it, that sort of thing, there's going to be sponsors. Guy and I have been doing daily Twitter Spaces while the market's open and talking about it and, and bringing people. We've had amazing people pop on and have those conversations. I don't know. You Could you have done it on Periscope? Yes. For whatever reason, Periscope, the the idea of having a camera in your face, I think, is a little more intimidating. Yeah, there's got to be better tools. There's got to be better tools. There's, there's just some things like I had to figure out who I should let talk, for example. I'm like, is this person crazy? Am I going to have to like cut someone off, which I don't love to do? It's like talk radio. That's what it reminds me of. It's like sort of a much more dynamic version of talk radio. A lot of it is. And I do think it will coalesce around two things. One is the experts, then the people that are popular, and then just groups of people that want to get together and talk about like I was on one the other day where people were talking about putting, golf putting. And like, I was just listening to it and they love talking about how to putt, right? And I thought that was nice. I was like, okay, I get that. Like, I get that, but I'm not interested in any way, but I listened for a while and they were just, it was helpful, I guess, how to putt. Probably. Well, I mean, putting at night, obviously, is another line from another movie, <laughs> but I digress. So I was going to ask you, so I had an opportunity to interview Michael Saylor a couple weeks ago. And my first question to you, I'm sure you heard of micro strategies long before I did, but was that even on your radar screen prior to the whole Bitcoin thing? I don't know about the Bitcoin part of it right now. I haven't actually updated. I did cover a long time ago, and I don't even remember. Like yeah, I, well, well, it's fascinating. I didn't know what they did either. And, you know, just to, not that I need to get you up to speed, but 
you know, fast forward um, right now on their balance sheet of MicroStrategy, they have some 60,000 Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And the stock price went from basically flatlining for five years at about $180, uh, top ticked at $1,300. As we sit here today, it's either side of $800, all basically predicated on the, the rise and fall of Bitcoin. But my question to you is not MicroStrategy, is I'm fascinated you had a back and forth about NFTs on Twitter the other day. And if you would have asked me beforehand, I would have been like, Kara Swisher is going to think this is all sort of nonsense, but it's anything but the case. You actually find some value here. I'm curious as to you know, what your thoughts are on NFTs. On the microstrategy things, it's fine if these companies are going to buy. Bitcoin is going to send the price up, but it's not a business, right? It's, not, it's an, a speculative asset holding that lots of companies do with whatever they buy, but it's not their actual business. So you know, that's just a financial transaction. If they want to be a financial transaction company, fine. That's just a glorified investor as far as I can tell, and a good at it or bad at it or whatever. That's not making something. So whatever, if they want to do that and, and goose their stock, fine but it's not a business. So, well, it is, but it isn't. So with, with NFTs, here's what I think. First of all, everybody freaked out. When the internet first started, all these people came to me and they were like, what is it? What's on it? Why do I need it? Like, if, if, same thing with Twitter, whatever it was. And I said, it's not anything. It's everything. Like I said, everything will be digit. Everything that can't, the sentence I said was everything that can be digitized will be digitized. That's all I'm saying to you, everything. I don't know what it is. It's whatever. Like, what do you care what it is? It's everything. And so one of the things that was important to me around NFTs is everyone sort of focused on this Beeple artwork, which was sold for $69 million. This is 5,000 photos that Beeple, who's a graphic artist, popular graphic artist made, some of which are just puerile, some of which are funny, whatever. It's 5,000. It's a JPEG. It's a giant JPEG. Somebody, and someone's like, I'm not going to pay for that. I can copy that. I'm like, do you own the Mona Lisa? You can take a picture of it. You can put it on your screen. They're not getting paid. Everything can be copied now, every single thing. And so it's just the ownership of it and then something you might want to do with it over time. And the the ownership of anything, like what is a baseball card? Why is that baseball card worth more than that one? Because there's fewer of them because of this particular person. So I kind of think it's one, it's super just like everything else in the physical world. So why not? Why can't Jack Dorsey's first tweet owning it? be worth something. It can be. You can collect it. It's a collectible. Secondly, NFTs aren't going to just be that kind of thing. It's not going to, it's just, it's just manifesting itself first in art, but it could be deeds to houses, deeds to cars, right? Why do you need a deed? Why can't you do an NFT value kind of thing? And then you can link it to anything. If you're a performer, sit in my front row seat, have coffee with me. This gives you the right to this. This is a golden digital ticket for something. And so my whole thing about it, because I wasn't going to crap all over it was, I don't know what it's going to be. I didn't know what the internet's going to be. And what do I care what it's going to be? Google is just a website. I have a website, but my website's not worth as much. Google is just a website. And it was. And some websites became very valuable and some websites didn't because of what they attached to it. That's how I look at it. So I'm not going to zero it out just because I'm like, people shouldn't sell for $69 million. What do I know? Someone's paying for it. So what? That's how I feel about it. Like, why zero it out at this moment in time? It's interesting that non-fungible tokens, NFTs have become popularized, at least in the in the recent, the very near, just because fine art and sports, you've heard of this top shot. I mean, this stuff is trading. And, and I heard you kind of say this, and I agree 100%. If, if Bitcoin's not 58,000, people's artwork is not trading at 69 million, that sort of thing. So it's very tied to- they used in that case, but yes, yes, yeah, yeah, no, so, so, yes, so the NFTs are built off the Ethereum network and it's basically demonstrating another use of this blockchain. It's a consumer gateway into this. Like before, it was like you own Bitcoin, you could sell Bitcoin. Most people couldn't get into it, most people couldn't transact with it. It doesn't make any like, what do I want this for? And so, if you're not a 
speculative investor, it's like, oh, you can't even deal with it. I don't even know what to do. But if you can buy things with it or there's value in it, then it does have. Then it's like, this is the cons- just where the internet commercialized. And then you had to get Google or Yahoo first and then Google there. Then it became clear what the use case was. And then you had Amazon using it for commerce. So I don't have the imagination to know where these NFTs are going to go. And, but I do know the direction they're going to go. And is it creative people? Just like what's going to happen with apps? I don't know. When apps came out, everyone was like, well, that's not going to work. I'm like, well, yeah, it will, because we don't know what the apps are going to be. Like who would have thought of Uber? Someone did. It's just like apps, just like the internet, just like Twitter. Like same thing with Twitter when it came out. I had all these celebrities like, what do I need that for? I'm like, well, obviously, because you can talk to fans. That's the other thing. The ability for creators to talk to fans and benefit from fans is huge. Getting rid of the middleman, the galleries and things like that, and then having an ongoing economic relationship with what you create, because I think Beeple's going to get 10% of it resells. Picasso didn't get it once it went up in price, but why not? Why shouldn't they? Anyway, that to me, I think the trend of OnlyFans and all this other stuff is part of the same idea of these close fan relationships with creators. I think that's super interesting. Yeah. So two weeks ago, we had a guest named Mikel Jolet. He's the lead singer of a rock band that I am a big fan of called the Airborne Toxic Event. And, you know, it was right when this Kings Leon NFT came out and we've had a lot of conversations about this. Yeah. And so what was really interesting, the way we were talking about it, 69 million, six bucks. It doesn't really matter. What's happening here is that NFTs are going to give artists the ability to accrue some value of their art in the future, which big corporations have basically disintermediated over the last, let's say, 20 years with the explosion of the internet. So it's really hurt artists. So to your point, the creator economy now has another tool possibly that's built on another technology, right? That will allow them to kind of monetize their uncaptured revenue artwork. Yeah. So why not let them do that? Again, that's why when I saw Twitter or things like when I see something, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen here. And, but I do know that People are going to be using cryptocurrency. That's like, I try to think of big trends and then go directionally in that way. Cryptocurrency, it's going to be a thing. Let's just stop arguing over the price of Bitcoin and talk about where it's going. It's like arguing over, I just remember at the time when I started covering the internet, a lot of media people were like, oh, care, it's a Ponzi scheme. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not. Everything's going to be digitized and everything can be digitized. That's what's amazing is physical things are now being digitized in some fashion. And that's fascinating. That's to me is really interesting. So Kara, you know, we spent a lot of time over the last couple of years kind of going back and forth. I'm saying we collectively about big tech regulation. And it just seemed to be like the, the calendar turned. We have a new administration here in the U.S. It seems that it's just on the back burner here. Do you have, no. do you, it's all right, that's what I want to know. It, it, what are your thoughts here? Is it coming hard and fast? And have we just kind of been focused on some other things in the, in the near term? Yeah, we did have that capital attack and that crazy election. So yeah, we pulled busy in COVID. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I do think that some of the appointments the Biden administration has made are very significant. Tim Wu, Lena Khan, if they possibly at the FTC, those are indicators of movement. I don't know who they're naming to the antitrust division, but you do see a lot of moves that it's not the Obama administration, because I do think the Obama administration really fell short of what it should have been doing early on with these companies. And, you know, the Trump administration is the one that did the the Google case, which is interesting, Barr did over the objections of some of his prosecutors. That may be technical, like what they should 
focusing on what they can win. But it seems like the people they're putting in place aren't quite as cautious. And you see activity up on Capitol Hill with Amy Klobuchar, for example, on antitrust stuff. You see David Cicilline. You see, I think there'll be a reinvigoration of the FTC, which is important. It's so underfunded. I can't believe I'm saying this about a government agency, but boy, is that underfunded. And then you see like all these initiatives across the globe, you know, everywhere. So this is a global initiative that's happening. And I think these companies know it and they're starting to do things depending on who they are. One of the things I always talk about is that there's no such thing as big tech. I keep saying that. Every tech company is different. So you just saw Apple and Google make all these moves in the app stores, very small ones, but you can see them starting to self-police, at least to look good, like cutting some deals with the smaller app makers, although it's hardly a you know, a scratch on their revenue. It hasn't hurt yet. It's going to hurt. Some of these things are going to hurt. Same thing with Facebook. They're going to put out a human rights report. Like We screwed up the world. Let us tell you how we did it. That's hysterical. That was just, we're like, okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Facebook and, and Dan mentioned that Mark sweats when he's interviewed by you, which you, which you <laughs> can probably understand. But I, I want to ask you this because the headwinds are clearly there for a lot of these names. One of the things I've said about Facebook for years is that I, I basically hate everything about Facebook other than the stock, not yeah, yeah. if that makes sense or not. But now my question to you is, Thanks you know, to have ES- an advertising duopoly. That's a yeah, good well, point. but but ESG investing has become. I mean, that's obviously going to be a huge. It's been a huge story. It will continue to be a huge story. One of the things that I've posited is the existential risk, in my opinion, to Facebook is that they fall under the auspices of ESG investing. Does that make any sense to you, given the climate? They're very disliked. I think dislike matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you sort of are like, sometimes the Facebook are like, why aren't they going after Google? I'm like, they should, but they hate you. I don't know how to explain it. It's just the way they've conducted themselves and the kind of spinny, complicit kind of slow role of fixing things and the power they have is really been deleterious to their, and their, their, their big bear hug of the Trump administration. You know, by the way, Apple was right in there with the Trump administration. So was Google. So were the rest of them. You know, they just didn't make such a show of it. Like, it just felt like these people will do anything and make any deal. And so I actually liked their move in Australia because they were like not being pushed around by Rupert Murdoch. I kind of like that. I was like, you're actually right here. But a lot of people like Facebook sucks. And I was like, and in fact, I was like, they don't suck here. They're actually doing the correct, probably the correct thing for them. So I do think there's a not being liked matters a lot. Like it really does. And being the biggest and most powerful and then having hurt some politicians really puts you in a really bad situation. So I'm, I'm be curious to see what they're going to be doing from a lobbying point of view, trying to get the Biden administration to like them. I don't think it's going to work necessarily. And so I think they will be subject to things and then they'll show their real teeth, which is to fight back, which they'll do like rather vehemently. They already are. They're already making some moves in that direction. So I don't know. I, I think the thing that'll get Facebook, like every other tech company, will be lack of innovation, inability to buy things, being slowed down rather significantly. They're already not a particularly innovative company at all, in fact. You know, I always joke that Snapchat, Evan Spiegel's their chief product officer at Snapchat, but they're not, they can't really buy things right now. Can they buy Clubhouse right now? Would that get a lot of attention? Sure would. What can they buy? What can they do? And so they have to then keep employees that are going to be innovative. They can't just brute force takeovers as easily. And so that's, I think, a problem. Microsoft got slowed down by all these. And then all these other people got through the doors and windows. Microsoft missed mobile because of their, mm-hmm. their, yes. their yeah. I mean, and I know you were recovering all of that back at the turn of the century. Um, you yes. know, you, you make you make Steve a great Palmer point. At a meeting, all, everybody had iPhones and he was in a, an analyst meeting and everyone, you know, you put up, you can see the Apple's logo and he was looking at a sea of Apple logos. 
and he just insulted everybody. And I was like, why don't you just notice that they all have Apple computers and think about what that means rather than be angry about it? He missed so many turns, that guy. I like Mal. He's actually quite pleasant right now with his base basketball owning and you made a really good point because of the regulatory like overhang you're not seeing a lot of big strategic M&A within tech and if you think about just what the pandemic did it accelerated a lot of technologies and you would think that some of these companies would have been gobbled up right by some of these larger ones but they're not able to do it so here's a good question there's a lot of M&A it's it's happening in the SPAC space now I'm not going to ask you to opine on SPACs as a structure but it's really interesting that all of these tech companies predominantly tech, a lot of tech, industrial tech and that sort of thing, but they're coming public and they're coming through SPACs and they're coming through people who just raise money in a blank check company. They're really good. I mean, there's a lot of really good groups, but there's a lot of money chasing not a lot of great quality right now. What's your take on that? I think that's exactly it. You know, there's going to be, there's a lot of SPACs and they got to spend that money. It's like, I'm trying to think of like a bar or something. A lot of people with a lot of money in their pocket and not a lot of choices, right? So I think that's going to be the difficult part. The other part is a lot of people that I'm talking to companies are saying like, or talking to SPACs, they're like, I don't really want to listen to their little boards of people they put together. I just would like the money, right? They don't want to like, we put together all these fantastic famous media people or famous black people. And, you know, Paul Ryan, like someone was like, why don't we talk to him? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so that's the kind of ridiculousness of it. Like everyone has to join one, like it's a country club or something. And so that's, to me, it's just money, right? And there's going to be so much money washing around going forward. I really think the stock market's going to take off. Like, we're going to go roaring 20s after pandemic. I do think, I know everyone's talking about like a decline. And I'm not, listen, I'm not a stock market person like you guys. I just feel like there's all this pent up demand. I think there's all kinds of savings that have been sitting in people's bank. I'm not talking about people that have suffered, poor people, but there's a lot of people with money. Quite far down the whole you know, economic chain, there's a lot of people who just haven't been doing anything and they, where they usually spent. And then there's the stimulus money and everything else. And there's all kinds of money awash in the system. And you have this feeling that everyone's ready to burst. They want to get out. They want to spend... It sounds dumb, but you don't want to be anecdotal about these things. But I rented a house in, in July and I was like, I'll take the big one. Like, I don't, I never do that. I'm like, I'll take the medium one or I'll take the little one. I was like, I'll take the expensive one. Cause I haven't done any, I have all this cat. Like I haven't spent it. I usually go to like Europe or go to trip or go to Hawaii. I was like, I can't go there, but uh, next year I can go there. But I, all I was thinking of is like, I would like to fly somewhere. I will take the expensive seat. I will take the best I can afford. And I feeling it's iterating everywhere. I'll go to that restaurant. I'm never doing takeout again. I'm not going to cook anymore for a little while. So I feel like there's all there's going to be all kinds of economic activity all over the place. But that's just me. Just to segue back to your view about the economy, I think Napoleon said to understand the person, you have to understand what was happening in their life in their 20s. So I understand your point of view, but there are a lot of people that are 20 right now that have lived through this. What do you think their view on the world's going to be when they're our age, effectively. It's interesting because I have an eight, a 19, oh, he's almost 19, my son, and he's got smaller dreams. I know it sounds dumb. Like, think about it. They've come to adulthood in Trump, in a lot of unrest politically, a lot of distrust of government. Even if you don't believe all the war shit that Trump was doing about deep state, it does resonate, like not working, things aren't getting together. You don't have to believe that that propaganda to be affected by it in some way. And then you have this COVID thing. They sort of, their first college years were affected by it, their end of their high school, whatever. So you, we have to wonder what, I'm trying to think of what 
I mean, mine was, I was a little young for this, but Nixon and the whole thing around the pollution was going to kill all of us. It like, it definitely hasn't, I'm trying to think of what impacted me, you know, 80s dance tunes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what was the thing that got you, but there is a less, a more pragmatic look at things. And maybe I don't need to consume as much. So there is that trend. And then at the same time, you could also feel possibly a, a roaring 20s feeling. Like you could imagine last pandemic, there was that. There was the war and then the pandemic and then the roaring 20s. And so you could see that too. Not everything is necessarily has to happen exactly the same way. But so I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting. They definitely have smaller expectations of the world, which is good and bad. What are you looking at in tech? Well, it's interesting. You've forgotten more about technology than I'll ever know, number one. Number two, just quickly, your take. I love your take. I hope you're right about the stock market. My pushback would be a couple things. You know, I think what could be good for the economy this time around might be really bad for the stock market. I mean, the GDP is ridiculous levels. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is going to approach $8 trillion. I mean, I could rattle off really boring numbers that don't seem to scare anybody. But what the thing that really concerns me, and I'm sure you have some very strong feelings about this, is the wealth gap in this country has never been wider. And every time Jerome Powell and the Fed opens their mouth, that wealth gap continues to grow. And they continue to go down the same path that just makes the poor poorer and the rich richer. Just curious as to your thoughts there. I think a lot about this. I write a lot about this, actually, which is interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, last April or May or something like that, I said, the companies that are going to benefit from the pandemic are all going to be tech companies. They're going to become the richest people in the world. They're going to add to their net worth as individuals and as companies in an unprecedented way because they're right at the right place. And it's through no innovation of their own, none. They just were there in the right place at the right time, kind of like having the pickaxe is when the gold rush happened. That was a more positive thing, I guess. And so I was sort of like, this is a problem. This is a real problem because they get more powerful. They get more monopolistic. They get in the way of innovation. They just are like semi-trailers running down the highway and nobody can pass them. Like that's the danger is the, is the power here. And there, the government has shown no interest in the U.S. government, at least, in negating that power at all. And they're the only ones that have. So that's one trend. The other was the government's removal from its role of seeding really important things. There's been a real nervousness about that um, and seeding innovation. Like I just did Mariana Matsukato. If you ever listen to that one, she's a great economist, really interesting talking about the public sector. You know, she was making the very pertinent point that you remember when Obama was investing in various things and also the same thing with the car companies and stuff. Everyone focused on Solyndra not working. Well, they gave money to Tesla. Why did they get badly judged? They made a good bet and, in fact, didn't take the upside that they needed to on Tesla. The government didn't in lots of ways. And so her idea is that like, the government is much more of a player. And we walked away from that. So that makes me super nervous. But the government has to lean into this income inequality, not just because it's the right thing to do, which is should you should do anyway, no matter what in life. To me, it seems like sometimes they're like, Diversity, it's just virtue thing. I'm like, it's just the right thing to do. It's the right thing. But it's also like a ridiculous waste of resources to pretend that only white men can be smart in investing. You're just like stupid. It's just absolutely stupid to think that diversity is not strong. And so when you think about income inequality, having a lot of poor people and a lot of rich people creates a really bad, more people that are earning money and being innovative is good for everyone. It's good for rich people. It's good for poor people. It's good for people in the middle. And pulling people up out of these places has always been the strength of the United States in a lot of ways. Having this obscenely amount of rich people at the top and a very hopeless, angry, 
ill health people at the bottom is prescription for disaster. Like absolutely, it's not good for you. And what I always say to a lot of people, they and I think these companies and these people have to address it really strongly and right now, because the thing I always say to them, and I've repeated this over and over again, is you can do something about income inequality and see it as an opportunity, just the way climate change is an opportunity, not necessarily a problem. It's a problem that can become an opportunity. If you don't do something about income inequality, you can armor plate your Tesla. That's your choice. That is your choice. That is what's going to happen. And and you'll deserve it. You'll deserve whatever's coming to you. And so I think about, I'm going to finish up Amazon, like for example, fascinating stuff about healthcare today, right? We continue to talk about it on Pivot, this move into healthcare. They have to go into healthcare. It's sort of a big area. They took a cost center. This is what Scott was talking about today, which was Scott Galloway was talking about today. They took a cost center, which was their computing, and they turned it into a bit profitable business. They turned their logistics, which was a cost center, into a profitable business. They're going to turn their healthcare system inside Amazon into a profitable business. Think about it like that. Let's turn this income inequality thing into something that's a positive for everybody versus the way we look at it. And just like try around, try UBI, try all kinds of things that we don't have to just argue about minimum wage. There's lots of innovative ways to do this, to bring people up to a, a living wage and giving them healthcare benefits. And if this COVID situation has taught us anything else is we cannot afford having people who are sacrificial workers and people who are able to stand a little higher on the floodplain because it's just, it's going to break down in a really ugly way and people like Trump and worse are going to come and take advantage of that, I think. I think. And then everybody's fucked, right? I think you kind of tied those two existential threats pretty well together. If you think of climate and, and income inequality, and if you think about the last five years or so, we're it's seeing increasing violence around both of those topics, if you really think about it. And it really is destabilizing um, our democracy. A waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a It's an indulgence. You know, we can't afford to be, do all this hate. We can't, like, if you want them to do it that way, let's just do it that way. It's it's unaffordable. We can't afford it. And, and, and it's indulgent and it's stupid. And we have a bunch of stupid people who are going to do stupid things and they've been propagandized and radicalized and that's never good. It's just, it's just not. No, you're right. And listen, Kara, it's wonderful. You're a brilliant mind and it's Thank amazing you. to have you with us. We love your work. You know that we love having you on our show, on our podcast, and we truly appreciate you being so gracious with your time. Thanks for joining us on the tape, Kara Swisher. Of course. All right. Thanks guys. Once again, we'd like to thank Kara Swisher. Folks, if you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at On The Tape Pod, and we'll see you next week. 